Isaiah chapter 26, if you'll turn there with me. Last time in our study together, we didn't quite get out of the 26th chapter. We left off at the end of verse 9 there in Isaiah chapter 26. We mentioned that Isaiah 24 through 27, oftentimes it's referred to as a mini apocalypse because a lot of what Isaiah is seeing here, not all of it, but a good portion of it, as we've been taking notice of, are things regarding the latter days. We see this repetitious phrase, in that day, in that day. And as we've mentioned before, that's a a key phrase, particularly when we see it uh, in the mouths of the prophets, when it's telling us, in that day, it's referring to a latter time, and more often than not, it's looking down with a telescopic lens further out to something in the last days uh, themselves, anything pertaining from perhaps the time of the rapture of the church when the saints are caught away to the seven-year period of tribulation, to the return of Christ and his second coming, to set up his kingdom here on the earth, to throw over the Antichrist and his enemies, to then rule and reign for a thousand years on the earth. And Isaiah, as he's describing these things, seems to be seeing a lot of these things as he's putting the pen to the page about them at this time. And again, we have to wonder what it was like for Isaiah, because again, he's seeing these things. He's not just hearing them, as we saw, this is the vision of Isaiah the prophet, so the Spirit of God is actually giving him revelation, he's seeing these things, he's been taking down through human history and seeing events like this taking place, Uh, you know, how interesting, we don't realize how blessed we often are, again, when Peter writes, he tells us that the prophets longed to look into and to understand the things that you and I do on this side of the cross and the resurrection and having the full picture, the full canon of Scripture at our disposal, the indwelling of the Spirit of God within us to give us revelation and clarity of what all these things mean. And so imagine Isaiah is seeing these things. He's recording these things. It says that they knew that they were writing them for another generation, and they longed to understand them. So imagine Isaiah is seeing these things. What does, I wish I knew what that meant. I I wish I, what is that supposed to mean? And here he is faithfully recording these things as God's using him as an instrument. uh, And yet many of these things, seeing them and not fully grasping himself as they were way further down the projection in human history. Imagine Isaiah's writing some of these things that we're reading about here some 3,000 years ago, at least 700 years before the time of Christ. Uh, and now we find ourselves here now in the year, you know, 2023, and he's describing events way, way down, uh, and yet seeing these things. Now, as he comes to verse 10, where we left off last time, the end of verse 9, it seems here he's depicting now the condition of the wicked, those who would be in rebellion to God, and he says there in verse 10 of chapter 26, let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, the idea is in the midst of those who are living right and living righteous, he, that's the wicked, will still deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they will see and be ashamed for their envy of their people. Yes, the fire of your enemies, Isaiah says, shall devour them. So again, Isaiah here, verse 10, seems to be, as I said, depicting the condition of the wicked, describing really, you notice, 
kind of the sadness and the, the, the grave state, the sober state of the hardness of human hearts that does exist among humanity, despite, as Isaiah describes there in verse 10, being shown tremendous grace from God. Uh, you know, the Bible tells us in Peter's writing that God is the God of all grace. And so many times God is so gracious. Again, mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. That's restraint. That's mercy. Mercy is when God restrains or holds back from giving us what we rightly deserve. The Bible tells us that God often doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. But grace is giving us what we don't deserve. So mercy, per se, is not locking us up for our crimes. Grace is not only not locking us up for our crimes and waiving our sentence, but then on top of it, writing us a check for a million dollars, giving us a, a free house in Hawaii uh, with servants and you know extended blessings and privileges for the entirety of the rest of our life. I mean, that, that's, that's God's way of actually showing his abundant kindness and his goodness and his favor. And here, Isaiah says, let grace be shown from God to the wicked. And how often it is, you know, God is so gracious. Jesus said he makes the sun rise on the just and the unjust. He gives rain to the just and to the unjust. God is always being kind and gracious. And he says, but the sad thing is so hard can a human heart be, so rebellious can a person be that despite being shown abundant grace, that heart keeps on rebelling against God. He says here, let grace be shown to the wicked, and then key word, yet he will not learn righteousness. In other words, though God is gracious, God is kind, God is being favorable, that the wicked rudely despises the goodness of God despises the kindness of the Lord, and really just disregards it and has no interest in change whatsoever. And here he describes this tragedy of how hard a heart can be in rebellion towards God, even though they may see others living right. He mentions in the land of a brightness, he says they still continue to ignore all the righteous patterns around them, though God's giving them the pattern of other people who are living upright around them. The grace of God being shown to them isn't enough. The patterns of other people saying, look, this is how to walk in the light. This is how to live right. Still, nonetheless, notice they keep pursuing evil. They keep rebelling, and they have no interest in change. And how sad the reality that a heart can become that hard towards the Lord, that though he's even kind, you know, as Paul's writing in the New Testament to the Romans, he says, would you despise the goodness and the kindness of God? And he says they're not realizing that it's the goodness of God that's intended to lead men to repentance. Again, rather than God being severe, sometimes he's overly good and kind, even with those who are behaving the worst, because he's trying to convince them, listen, be reasonable here. I'm not only not punishing you, I'm trying to be really nice to you. And I don't know about you, I mean, be very candid. The grace of God is an amazing thing, whether it was before you were a Christian or whether it's even after you've been a Christian. You cannot tell me there have not been times in your life when you were behaving your absolute worst and then God went and did something really nice for you. And he blessed you in some way and you're thinking, this is crazy. I mean, I've been behaving worse in this past week or this past month or in this past season than I ever have. And here God's not only not punishing me, he's, he's being nice to me. He does something good and he blesses me, but that's God's grace. 
And again, in his grace, he's trying to get our hearts to turn. But again, because we have free will and we can be so hard-hearted and stubborn as human beings, Isaiah says, though his grace is shown to those who want to be wicked, they still don't, they don't want to learn what's right or righteous. And even though they have a pattern, they keep doing unjustly and tragically because their heart is so polluted in that condition. He says at the end of verse 10, they will not behold the majesty. The idea is the, the awesomeness of the Lord. And not just the awesomeness in his power, but the idea of the awesomeness of his love, the awesomeness of his goodness. Like, whoa, that, that, how, how majestic is that, that he's so gracious and kind, but they don't see that, again, because their polluted heart hinders them from seeing how great the Lord is because they refuse to just consider God. And the tragedy of that is it just brings the own self-inflicted punishment. Verse 11, he describes when your hand is lifted up, they will not see. In other words, the outcome for those who rebel against the Lord, he's going to say, is never good. Ultimately, he says, they don't see that the hand of God is lifted up against them because of their constant rebellion. Now he's going to have to chasten or discipline or judge, opposing their pride, opposing their sinfulness, because eventually as they strive against God and strive against God, his spirit cannot and will not strive with man forever. And he says, ultimately, they will find themselves both, he says, verse 11, ashamed and experiencing the fire of being burnt and being devoured by their own wrongdoing and their rebellion against God. And ultimately, that will be the end of the wicked, those who continue to persist in rebellion against God's will and against God himself will end up finding themselves ashamed. They will end up finding themselves, in a sense, experiencing being burnt by the fire, if you would. And I'm not even talking about the fire of hell. I'm just talking about being burnt by the reality that the Bible says that our God is a consuming fire. Uh, and when you fiddle with fire and you play with the matchbook, eventually you end up getting burnt in the process. And he says, ultimately, they'll experience the fiery, in a sense, temperament of the Lord. They'll find themselves getting burnt and really devouring their own lives because of their own problems they bring upon themselves. Now, verse 12, he gives sort of the contrast of God's merciful distinction in dealing with his people who are seeking to obey him, seeking to live in righteousness and walk with him. He says, verse 12, Lord, you will establish peace for us. For you also have done also our works in us. You know, it's interesting. The Bible tells us there is no peace, saith the Lord, for who? The wicked, right? There is no peace, saith the Lord, for the wicked. God will continue to cause those who are living wickedly to have an internal experience like their heart is like a troubled sea within. You know, and that's actually part of the kindness of God, too, that when you and I or any human being is living wickedly, God says, here's what I will do. I'll never let that person experience peace because he doesn't want them to be lulled into a false sense of security, thinking that it's okay the way that they're behaving wickedly. So God, if a person is living wickedly, he always keeps them in a restless, agitated condition. And that's part of the kindness of God that God will purposely keep their inner spirit in constant turmoil where they're always agitated and they're always restless and they can never just be at peace because God says, I can't give peace to you if you're living outside of my will. It's not good for you. It would be unloving for God to do that. Now, the contrast of that is when someone's in right relationship with God, when we're living with him as his people, the condition of our life truthfully should be the exact opposite of that. A Christian should live in a constant 
realm of experiencing a strong degree of peace within. Because the Bible tells us that through Jesus Christ and his blood upon the cross, when we trust in him, that we become at peace. Romans 5 says at peace with God. We make peace with God. We're no longer at war, enmity with God. And so then when we make peace with God as our creator through trusting Jesus' finished work, the, the truce of our soul has been established. We've waved the flag of surrender. The peace terms were Jesus' blood. And we, in a sense, have made peace with God. So we know we're at peace with God. That gives us a sense of peace positionally. We know we're right with God. We know that we're going to heaven, that we're not destined for hell and eternal torment. But beyond that, then there's also the peace of God that the Bible tells us about. That there's an experiential thing of not just being at peace with God relationally, but experiencing the peace of God that is an inward calm and rest, a sense of inward cessation from agitation, the exact opposite of what it's like when we live outside of God's will. There's that blessing. Even the Bible talks about the peace that passes human understanding. We can be in really agitating circumstances or really you know, tumultuous times and like a ship that's out on the sea, there can be all kinds of crazy storm going on around. And like Jesus sleeping on the boat in the middle of the storm, if Jesus is dwelling within you, the Prince of Peace, you can be totally at peace and calm within, even in the most agitated, difficult circumstances. It's the exact opposite. And so here he says of the people of the Lord, not the wicked, but he says for us, Isaiah says, you will establish peace for us. What a wonderful gift it is to know that we're at peace with God, to experience the peace of God. Again, we just saw last week in the same chapter that we're in, if you glance back, Isaiah 26, 3, that beautiful promise there, you will keep him, remember we saw this last time, in perfect peace. The little language is literally peace, peace. The idea is you know, intensification, ultra peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. For in Yahweh the Lord is everlasting strength, or Yahweh the Lord is the rock of one's strength or foundation, the idea there is in the Hebrew. So again, how wonderful to experience God's peace. And then Isaiah describes as well in verse 12, Lord, for you have done all our works in us. It almost sounds like Isaiah had a little bit of a foretaste of what the book of Ephesians is about and many of the other places in the New Testament where the Bible describes the work of God happening in us and that God's the one working in us. Again, the Bible tells us that we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, right? So that no one can boast. And that the Bible says that God works in us to will and to act according to his good pleasure that we are to work out our salvation. We don't work for our salvation, but we're to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. And then the writer says, Paul says, for it's God who works in us to will and to act according to his good pleasure. And, and that is really the essence of the Christian life to a much greater degree, even more than Isaiah and the, the saints of the Old Testament knew in that we have the very presence of the spirit of God himself dwelling inside of us living within us, working within us and accomplishing things. And again, how much of the Christian life, as we've often said so many times before, it's not about us trying to behave like a Christian or be a godly person. It's about learning how to let Christ live in us and live through us because that's the Christian reality, Christ in you. 
He's at work within you, bringing change, making you Christ-like, helping me to walk in holiness and overcome sin. And again, it's his work in us. He's the one who has done all the work in us. If you're here this evening and you found yourself to any degree proud of some sin you've recently overcome, you're missing the whole point. You may have yielded, you may have repented, but where do you think the power came from to walk in victory over your sinful flesh? Anything that God does in us to change us, to make us like Christ, the healing that he brings, the help that he brings, the victory that he brings. I love how Paul just so clearly proclaims it in the New Testament when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that's the whole point Paul's making there. God gives us the victory. It's a gift. He gives us victory. We yield to it. We believe it. We respond it. We have to cooperate to a degree, but it's God who actually is the one who has done the work in us in saving us, and he's the one that continues to do the work in us. That's why Paul says, being confident of this very thing, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And what a wonderful assurance it is to have, not only his peace, but to know that he's the one working in us. That's oftentimes what keeps us in such great peace. He says, verse 13, remembering what it was like prior, he says, O Lord God, masters besides you, rulers, masters besides you, have had, notice past tense, dominion over us. And again, Israel had experienced that. Numerous times they would rebel against God, and whether it was you know, times in Egypt, whether it was the Philistines, whether it was whoever it was that would, they, in their weakness, God would allow their enemies, the Moabites or the Midianites, to conquer them temporarily. They knew what it was like to have other masters ruling over them, where they would lose the rulership of God over their life, and they, in a sense, would wrongly submit themselves because of turning from God or turning to sin or idolatry. And God would say, okay, if you don't want me to rule over you, I'll let you try someone else. <laughs> if you want to have someone else rule over you, and so they'd experience that, and so he says, Lord, masters beside you have had dominion over us, but by you only we make mention of your name. And you know, the, to the certain degree, we at times know that reality too. Is it not true that we can look at verse 13 and we know the reality of maybe a time in our life when something else was mastering our life? And we were enslaved to something, and something was ruling over us. And whether it was some sinful propensity or some habit or some sinful behavior, or listen, sometimes we even find ourselves enslaved and being mastered to our own thoughts and feelings and emotions. Maybe panic and anxiety and worry has mastery over our life, or depression, or, or discouragement, or, or fear, or whatever. There are so many things that can have mastery over us but yet the Lord wants to be the one who rules over us. And when he's ruling over us, those other things lose their grip and they're dethroned. And when the Lord's enthroned in our life, that's ultimately the ideal. And, and Isaiah says, Lord, we know what it was like at one time to have others have dominion over us, but only as you've worked in us and by you, we make mention of your name as the rightful ruler Verse 14, they are dead and they will not live, he says. They are deceased. In other words, God would deal with their enemies. And often that's what he would do. He would, 
eliminate their enemies. He'd give them victory in battle. Remember, he wiped out, as we saw, much of Isaiah describes the conflict of the Assyrians coming against the people of Israel. And one night, remember, as we saw already, one angel goes out and 185,000 Assyrian troops are instantly eliminated in one night. One angel puts to death all these threatening enemies and they were deceased. Therefore, you have punished, he says, and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. And isn't it wonderful that God not only gives us victory, but even sometimes the wrong things of the past, he can even take the memory away? You know, some of us, I think, have traumatic, you know, hurt and wounds in our lives from memories that really have become traumatizing to us. Maybe it's a traumatizing time when something else was ruling over our life and was destroying our life and wreaking havoc in our life, and, and it's like a, a dark, scary, nightmarish memory. And how wonderful that God not only liberates us, but God's kind enough sometimes that he takes the memory away, and he liberates that 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 sense of, of what it was once like and the guilty thing that hangs over our head. He says, Lord, you've made all the memory to perish, that God can do that. He can, he can heal the mind, and he can change the circumstance or bring about new things to where the, the old memories disappear, and they don't, in a sense, control and haunt us the way that they once did. He says, you have increased the nation, verse 15, O Lord. You've increased the nation. You are glorified and you have expanded all the borders of the land. So Isaiah describes here how increase, notice, increase, he mentions growth, he mentions expansion, and again, who does Isaiah give all the credit for that to? The Lord, right? Lord, you increase the nation, he says, again, you have increased the nation, you have expanded the borders, and he says, Lord, you're the one that did it, and so you're the one that's glorified. Lord, you get all the credit, all the glory for that. Again, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that one may sow, another may water, but God gives the increase. And so important that we realize that, that any form of growth, any form of expansion, any form of blessing or success in what any area of our life or arena or ministry or anything that we put our hand to, to realize that the only way increase, growth, expansion, anything happens in any of our lives is the Lord. It, it's the Lord, and so he gets all the credit for it, and he gets all the glory for it. God does not need us taking bows for the good things that he does. And sadly, carnally, that is probably one of the bigger mistakes sometimes we make as Christians, is God begins to do something, God accomplishes something, and where we get in the way is all of a sudden we start taking bows and taking rounds of applause for God, and God's going, oy vey, are you kidding me? You're going to let that clap for you. Oh, boy. You know, because God's realizing no flesh should glory in his presence. And, and so here he says, Lord, you're the one that's glorified. You've increased us. You've expanded our borders. Lord, he says, verse 16, in trouble, they have visited you. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. And then he pictures here the, the turmoil that they were in when they poured out this prayer in their trouble. As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs, the laboring of a woman about to deliver, when she draws near the time of her delivery, so we have been in your sight, O Lord. We have been with child. We have been in pain. 
we have, as it were, brought forth wind. The idea is, Lord, we, we didn't bring forth anything. We couldn't bring anything to pass. <laughs> Interesting, Isaiah, as he just gave God all the credit, he says, Lord, when we were laboring and in pain and turmoil, like a woman in labor travailing, he says, you know, we couldn't bring birth anything. We couldn't deliver anything. There was nothing that we delivered in this situation. He says, it was like a, uh, just a, a, a wind that we brought forth. We have not, he says, verse 18, look what he says, we've not accomplished any deliverance on the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. In other words, Lord, we've never delivered ourselves. We were never able to give birth to or produce anything of value to get ourselves out of trouble. Lord, it was always you. And the only thing we did in the process, he says, verse 16, is in trouble, we poured out our prayer when your chastening hand was upon us. Lord, when it was tough and we got ourselves in a jam or we were in a hardship, we couldn't deliver ourselves. It was in those times of hardship that we visited you and poured out our prayer to you. And it wasn't our deliverance, it was your answer and your interjection of your power and your presence, Lord, because you got involved and you intervened, that's how deliverance came. And again, we look at Isaiah's description here of the people of God, and so many times, as what he describes here, that is a common pattern, is it not, in our lives? So many times, it seems the occasions when we are visiting the Lord and pouring out our prayer sincerely to the Lord, sadly, it's in the times when we're in trouble, or if the chastening hand of the Lord is upon us because we've gotten in trouble. <laughs> so unfortunately, those tend to be things that do kind of tend to, uh, you know, stir up prayer from our lives. Either we're in some trouble, and so because we're in trouble, then we utilize God like our 911 operator, and we, 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 we call the help hotline. Or when we get ourselves in trouble and the chastening hand of the Lord is upon us, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry, I'm never... And the sad thing is, is there should be a little more depth to our prayer lives than just when we're in trouble or if we've gotten in trouble. But God is gracious enough that at times he'll take whatever it requires to get us to communicate to him. And so sometimes the Lord will allow us. You know, I can't, I, I don't want to, I probably shouldn't, but I have to wonder sometimes if, you know, when we cry out to the Lord in prayer, nice to hear from you. We haven't talked since the last trial. I mean, you haven't really got serious and come to me and cried out since the last time your world was falling apart, but it's, hey, sorry it has to come to this, but <laughs> good to talk to you again. Or nice to see you come to a prayer meeting again. That's fantastic. I just sorry it had to mean that your world was falling apart, that finally, look, I better go pray with God's people because my world's falling apart. But sometimes that sadly becomes the thing that prompts us to seek the Lord. And here Isaiah says, you know, this was us, Lord. We couldn't deliver ourselves, but when we realized we couldn't deliver ourselves, that we couldn't accomplish deliverance for ourselves, boy, it got us crying out to you, and ultimately God's always kind, and he answers the cries of his people. We see it all through Israel's history, and he often kindly does it in all of our lives as well. Verse 19, some interesting verses as chapter 26 concludes now. He says, your dead shall live, together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. The idea is you who are buried in the dirt. For your dew is like the dew of the herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. So notice verse 19 here in Isaiah 26 describes very clearly in hopeful language 
the resurrection power of God for his people. The fact that God himself in a future day would resurrect the dead, that the dead would again live, that the dead bodies would arise, that they would be awakened and conscious and begin to sing, that the earth would cast out their dead. And again, in the Old Testament, we do get basic, if I could use the term glimmers, of the idea of resurrection. Certainly, we should not build our theology on understanding the resurrection from the Old Testament. That comes to light much more clearly, Paul says in Timothy, that light and immortality have come to light through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we do see references and glimmers, and here's one of those verses in the Old Testament where there's some basic description of this idea of the bodies of the dead who've been buried, that they would one day awake and arise again, that the physical frame would come back to life that had been buried in the earth. Again, Daniel says in his prophecy, Daniel 12, 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust, the idea is a euphemism for death, sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And when Jesus was speaking in John chapter 5, Jesus said this regarding resurrection. John 5, 25 to 29, he said, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming, Jesus said, in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Notice Jesus describes two different categories, not per se events, but two different categories of a resurrection and an experience of an afterlife. Those who would experience resurrection unto life, eternal life, and those who would experience resurrection in the afterlife to the experience of condemnation. Of course, we know what has guaranteed this to come to pass for all people is the finished work of Jesus himself, who resurrected from the dead, and Jesus was the first fruits of the fullness of resurrection because Jesus was the first one to raise from the dead to never die again. See, in the Old Testament, you have a few who came back to life that were raised back from the dead. And even in the New Testament, we have you know, Lazarus, we have Jairus' daughter, we have those who Jesus, even before his own resurrection, raised back to life, but they were raised from the dead to just die again a second time. Now, that's a real bummer if you ask me. Wow, you got to be raised back from the, from the dead, yeah. And then I had to do it a second time. I mean, that doesn't seem like that much of a, of a real blessing. But Jesus, as a man in a body of human flesh, was the first fruits of the resurrection because he was the first one to rise from the dead, the Bible says, to die no more. In other words, he raised, experienced a glorified, now resurrected eternal body, and that resurrected eternal body is the, that which he dwells in perpetually forever and ever, ever. And it's what is the hope now of every human being, 
to experience resurrection. You do understand that, that we believe the Bible teaches not that when a person dies that you're just this ghost or this ethereal spirit that's just swishing around the universe, but that the Bible teaches that our ultimate destiny is that we ultimately experience resurrection. That is a physical frame, that this earthly body, this mortal, puts on immortality, and this physical frame is transformed supernaturally, and we end up getting a new, glorified, resurrected body, that the physical frame that's buried in the dust of the earth rises and ultimately becomes the experience that we live in forever in a new form. And again, this is what Isaiah, again, imagine he's seeing something here. He says here, you're dead shall live together, he's interesting, he says, with my dead body, they shall arise. Now, I think Isaiah is speaking in the first person there, again, to some degree realizing he himself, like Job said, would experience resurrection, even as Job realized. But again, who's inspiring Isaiah to write this? By, this, by the Spirit of God, he's recording these things. I can't help but to think as well, interesting, your dead shall live together with my dead body. With my dead body, they shall arise. Perhaps, again, as God's saying that, knowing that one day through his son's dead body rising, that that's what would guarantee the resurrection of the rest of humanity. That through that same experience of his son's body rising from the dead. Now, as we try and piece together from an Old Testament to a New Testament perspective, how this comes to pass... You know, a couple things just briefly here so we don't, you know, sit here bogged down and drill down forever. But in Luke 16, Jesus describes a place, he refers to it as Hades, a place of the dead, where the Bible clearly seems to indicate, again, this wasn't a parable. Jesus did not use names and, and specific details when he taught parables. I believe Jesus is clearly speaking of a literal reality that's been created that he understood as the creator. And in Luke 16, he describes this place of the dead referred to as Hades, where people prior to the completed work of Jesus Christ in his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension, the completed work of redemption, would depart to as a holding location until he finished the entirety of his work. Again, remember Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through what? Me. So if Jesus means that, and that is true, and the only way to have direct access into heaven immediately after death to be absent from the body, to instantly be present with the Lord, Paul says, is through Jesus, then until Jesus came in a body of flesh, lived a sinless life, made perfect atonement for the sins of the world, died sacrificially, substitutionally, resurrected on our behalf, defeating the power of death, bringing the past resurrection, and then ultimately ascended back into heaven. How does anyone prior to that time, without partiality, get immediate access right into heaven? There would be a quandary there. And Jesus seems to be describing in Luke 16 this reality that prior to the time of the Messiah completing his work, that there was this location, he refers to the rich man and Lazarus, this beggar, and them both departing, going to a place called Hades, and one side was referred to the place of Abraham's bosom. Again, Abraham, remember, was the father of righteousness by faith, believing in the Messiah to come, and being credited with righteousness by his faith and trust in the promise of God, in the work of God, the coming Messiah. 
And so it's only fitting that Abraham would be, in a sense, the father of that location to a degree, and that when the righteous, those who were godly, believing in the coming Savior would die, that they departed to this location, and they were there, it says, being comforted in this location of Abraham's bosom. And that it was this great gulf fixed between them and those on the other side, which was the Bible describes, Luke 16, Jesus says, a place of tremendous torment where people there were suffering in torment who had died and in they, their death had died in an unbelieving condition, not trusting in the coming Messiah, living wickedly and rebelliously, and that they were there suffering in that location. And that when Jesus died between his death and his resurrection or somewhere in that phase there prior to his ascension back into heaven, that when Jesus died, he went to this place of Hades, revealed himself, the Bible says, preached to the spirits that were in prison, led captivity captive, and led them up like a train on high, ascending into heaven, where Jesus no doubt went to, to those who were being comforted in Abraham's bosom, these saints who died in faith, awaiting the Messiah, looking forward to the coming of Messiah, like we now look back to the finished work of Messiah. And he went there and he said, it's done. I'm the one that you've been waiting for, and it's all taken care of now, and if you think this place has been good in Abraham's bosom, wait till you see what the Father's house is like. And it seems at that moment, he then, if you would, led those who were there awaiting, giving them now direct access into heaven. Now the Bible says, as a result of the finished work of Christ, that to be absent from the body the moment we die is to be instantly present with the Lord through Jesus automatically now because the work is completed and that there still is in Hades this place of the wicked unbelieving who are being tormented in death. And when you read Revelation at the end of the great white throne judgment, it says there that death and Hades, this location, will all one day be then cast into a worse place of torment called the lake of fire, where people will then be tormented forever and ever in ongoing eternal suffering. But it's interesting that here, as Isaiah is seeing this idea of resurrection here, he's recognizing that one day those who were the saints awaiting Jesus' resurrection would one day have him come and release them from there. Matthew 27, there's an interesting little phrase where it tells us this in Matthew 27, that after Jesus died and resurrected, the graves were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and went about the city. So it seems that as Jesus speaks to these saints, their graves burst open, they're reunited, they receive their resurrected bodies, which they then ultimately for a time have, before they then ascend into heaven with the Lord, to which they're now at, we shall dwell, the Bible tells us, you know, in these bodies now, but in the midst of the rapture, when we are caught up as the church, our bodies are changed instantaneously, but it does refer to also those who have died in Christ, whose physical bodies were buried, that at that moment, they'll receive their resurrection body. That they're present with the Lord now in, in some temporary glorified body, but it's not until the rapture where they'll receive their glorified resurrected body, as in that event of the rapture, our bodies are changed as those alive in Christ, and the dead in Christ, their bodies are given to them at that moment. So again, Isaiah seeing these things, and again, maybe my curiosity gets the best of me. You say that was way more than we ever cared to know, but I wonder what he's seeing. 
What was he seeing of all that? How much was he seeing? He says it in one verse. But how much was he seeing of all those realities of understanding resurrection? Verse 20 says, come, my people, Isaiah says, enter your chambers, shut your doors behind you, hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth, notice, for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. Now, again, take notice. Again, what is Isaiah seeing here? He's seeing something down through the ages, speaking of a time period when the Lord, notice the language there, it says, verse 21, he comes out of his place to punish what? The inhabitants of the earth, earth dwellers, for their iniquity. So this is a time period, an event, where the Lord is punishing the inhabitants on the earth for their iniquity, no doubt, clearly speaking of the time of what we often know as the time of the tribulation. That during that seven-year period, when the wrath of God will be poured out, he mentions verse 20, a time that will be happening until his indignation has then passed. That is, after a set period of time, after those seven years, his indignation, the wrath of God will pass. But during that time, he is punishing the inhabitants of their iniquity. And notice what is happening here, verse 20 and 21. God is inviting his people to come out of their chamber or, or to come out of their location and to enter into, he says, a chamber of safety to shut the door, to be kept and preserved during this time while he is punishing the inhabitants of the earth. He says there, come my people, enter your chambers, a separate place from being the inhabitants on the earth, being punished for the iniquity of, of their sin. He says to his own people, listen, come away, enter your chambers, shut your doors behind you, hide yourself. The idea is be preserved and protected for a little moment. Interesting, if that is the tribulation, which I believe it is, God calls seven years a little moment. Way different timetables, huh? Hide yourself for a little moment until the indignation is passed, until the time of wrath has passed by, for behold, the Lord comes to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. So here's God inviting his people to come into a safe chamber to be preserved and protected till the danger and the harm of his wrath has passed by until that time period is over. Now look, that happens in two ways. Clearly, one, God will protect and preserve the Jews during the time of the tribulation period. The book of Revelation is very clear about that, that from the indignation and the wrath of both the devil, who is also inspiring the venomous hatred of the Antichrist, God will preserve and protect the Jewish people and bring them away to a place of safety. Revelation chapter 12 says this regarding the time of the tribulation and the Jews. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, a reference to Satan, he persecuted the woman, which is a reference there in Revelation 12 to, the, to Israel. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, referring to Messiah. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place 
where she is nourished for a time, times, and a half a time. A reference to time, times, that's two, that's three, and a half a time, three and a half years. So that for a three and a half year period, she would be preserved, the woman Israel, from the presence of the serpent and the dragon, which was enraged with the woman, went to make war with the rest of her offspring, the offspring of Israel, the Jewish people, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So as we read verse 20 and 21, clearly that reality to a degree will be very applicable as Isaiah the prophet, this Jewish prophet is saying this, that will come to pass for the Jewish people in the time of the tribulation. That somehow many believe this reference to this location in the wilderness, he calls it her place. Many believe that potentially that the Jews are going to be kept and preserved in the location of the rock city of Petra. Now, we can't be dogmatic about that. It's interesting, the location of Petra and what it provides as a safety and a fortress. And many believe that is the location in the wilderness that God will lead the Jewish people to when in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, when the Antichrist turns the tables after initially establishing a peace treaty with them, he will then, the Bible speaks of Daniel and Jesus himself talk about the abomination that causes desolation when the Antichrist will go into that rebuilt Jewish temple and he will proclaim himself now to be God and demand that the Jews worship him. And he will go from being the best friend who strikes a peace treaty for the nation of Israel to basically being their absolute worst nightmare. And he will bring intense venomous persecution against them, trying to kill and destroy them, but God will preserve and protect his chosen people and bring them aside to a location where they can enter into a chambers, shut the doors, in a sense, hide themselves for a little moment until the indignation of all the wrath of what God's doing and the wrath as well of the Antichrist is being poured out while God is working through the remainder of the tribulation period. But again, let me say in connection to that, do you notice where, notice where the Bible, God's word is very clear, where anti-Semitic attitudes and hatred for the nation of Israel stems from? The devil. It's demonic. It's diabolical. It's not something that it's just people's ideologies or its philosophies. There is a spiritual undercurrent that is behind that. When you see this hatred that certain people have, whether it's terrorist groups like Hamas or Hezbollah, whether it's Iran and the proxies they use to carry out their terrorist activity, whether it's people who are on college campuses, who are ramping up anti-Semitic hatred and wanting, you know, to, oh, you know, the, the poor Palestinians, the poor people of Gaza and, and horrible Israel, and, and, we, and the Jews are the problem. Listen, you have to understand that not only stems from human ignorance, and I won't diminish that because it's human ignorance, and it's not knowing your facts and knowing history, not even just Bible facts, just history. There is a demonic undercurrent behind that mindset because again even revelation 12 talks about when the dragon was precipitating this persecution it says of the woman who gave birth to the male child why do you think there's always been such unusual hatred 
for the nation of Israel and for the Jewish people. Because it's through them that came the word of God and Jesus Christ the Messiah that saved the world. And the devil hates that. And so because of that and knowing the plan that God has for Israel and how God orchestrates through that, he constantly is seeking to instigate this hatred towards these people in a way unlike no other people group have ever been hated and mistreated through all human history. There is no other answer behind that than I tell you it is, it is demonic. That is where it stems from. And even in this day, as this demonic attack is coming against them from the Antichrist, God, notice, God intervenes and he says, listen, c- come aside, shut your doors. Until, until the wrath passes, be shielded and God protects them. Now, that being said, take notice as well, and I'm more than glad to apply it to myself. This to me is also as well one of the greatest indications in the Old Testament as well of God's deliverance of his people during the time of the tribulation. That in the same way, you and I as the church, as Christians, I'm not saying we replace Israel, but by all means, these verses, as the Spirit of God gives them to us, are a very fitting description of a secondary way where God intervenes and invites his people to be shielded from punishment and wrath that is coming upon the inhabitants of the earth. As God in the tribulation is pouring out his indignation and punishing the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity and their rejection of Christ, God in the same way says to you and I as his people, he will, I believe, one day as we're called up to meet the Lord in the air, I hear the the voice of the Lord speaking to me, to you as a Christian, to us as the church, God saying to us, come my people, enter your chambers Shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. Again, Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, he says, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare, interesting, a place, chambers for you, I'll come again so that where I am, there you may be also. And again, the Bible teaches very clearly in many different locations, and I believe, and this is, to me, an Old Testament strong reinforcement of a pre-tribulation rapture that the church and Christians will be removed from the earth and shielded and kept in a safe way, tucked away in heaven, in the house of the Father, in the chambers that were created for us. They're shielded until the indignation on the earth has passed until the inhabitants of the earth are through being punished for their iniquity. And what a wonderful thing that the Spirit of God in the midst of this gives to us this very beautiful picture, I believe, of us being called away, the doors opening. Remember Revelation chapter 4 as we're going through it on Sundays where, where it says that John said, I saw a door open in heaven and I heard a voice saying, come up here. That's what our hope is. And as we watch things get chaotic and get crazy, that's what we're waiting for. The voice of one to say, come up here, my people, enter your chambers, be protected until the indignation is passed. What a wonderful thing. That's why the Bible calls it the blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. 
that we have that to look forward to. And as we see things heating up on this planet, it is tragic and sad to watch what's unfolding. But listen, to one degree, we can realize, you know, I think there's a song or something that's been out on the radio that things aren't necessarily always falling apart. To some degree, biblically, they're kind of falling into place. And things are falling into place because Jerusalem, like Zachariah says, is becoming a a cup of trembling where people like a bunch of drunken, you know, individuals are staggering around. And I'm telling you, folks, watch what's unfolding. I'm telling you, we have, I believe, not even began to see what potentially may be happening in the very near future. That, that, That is, things have already began to materialize I believe that you may very, very likely, again, I'm no prophet, but I believe it is very, very likely, you see already just in our own nation all the ramping up of the hatred and the venomous attitude towards the Jewish people, towards the nation of Israel, and other people, and listen, people with demonic mindsets who, just like the devil, who is a spiritual bully, are waiting until things intensify in Israel and are opportunists that are then from different directions going to want to come in and capitalize and and create things that make it a much, much bigger firestorm. Now, that being said, you have to realize that he who watches Israel doesn't sleep and slumber. I don't personally believe that what we're seeing now is what Ezekiel 38 describes, and one of the primary reasons I don't believe that is because America's pretty engaged. And to a degree, we have not only supplied munitions, but we're in the area. We've asked Israel to wait on their ground invasion because we realize that there are attacks coming against Americans and other places in the Middle East. And the one thing I have to give the current administration credit for is at least thus far, it appears they're trying to make an effort to stand with Israel. And I think that's a good thing and that we're there, and that our presence is there, and that we're seeming to indicate to any of the others in the area, listen, uh, if you're thinking about jumping into the fight and gang-stomping my little brother Israel, (laughs) you might want to think twice about that. But Ezekiel 38 describes a time when nobody stands with Israel, when nobody's there. So I don't see that happening right now. Now, I don't know. Could circumstances change that would cause, potentially, maybe it could cause that to happen. But that's what we would need to see. And that could come to pass, I think, many different ways. Uh, America's back could be broken somehow. Maybe enough American rhetoric gets stirred up to where all of a sudden people try and placate all the people who are wanting to become anti-Semitic and somehow a current administration decides, hey, maybe we should just get involved or maybe we're spread too thin because we've given all this money and and these ammunitions here and here and and so now we're in a weakened condition. I don't know. But what I'm telling you is, is what we see happening right now, do I think it's a major birth pang? Absolutely. I don't see what's described in Ezekiel 38, which is part of the reason why I haven't, as some others have opted to, tried to make a sermon series the past four weeks just talking about Israel. Because I see enough as it is that everybody just seems super stressed out, and my mentality is we just need to keep those eyes on the Lord. People need to keep their eyes on the Lord. (laughs) We know what the Word of God says. We need to keep our eyes on the Lord, what's going to transpire. We have it all described for us. And we need to keep our focus on the Lord. We need to pray for the peace of Israel. We need to have compassion. There are innocent, vulnerable people on both sides of the situation. There are Christians in Israel. There are Christians in Gaza. 
There are Palestinians and Arabs who know and love Jesus and who are innocent and, and, are, and are, in a sense, going to be harmed, even as many Jewish people were horribly, brutally mistreated by the terrorist attack that happened there as well. And we need to pray and continue to keep our eyes on the Lord. And so why don't we do it? Let's stand together.